Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. Even though we are going to spend the bulk of our time, the vast bulk of our time, in Psalm 55, I can't help but think that the Apostle Peter had Psalm 55 in mind when he penned 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7. There the Word of God says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Why do I say this sounds like Psalm 55? Well, turn to Psalm 55 and look with me at verse 22. Psalm 55, 22. Psalm 55, 22 says, Cast your burden on the Lord and He will sustain you. Now, does that sound familiar? I think it was uh, maybe a verse we just read. From 1 Peter chapter 5, just as Peter encourages us to cast our burdens on the Lord Jesus Christ because he cares for us, so King David encourages us to cast our burden on Yahweh because he will sustain those who are his own. Indeed, the rest of the verse goes on to say, he will never permit the righteous to be moved. Or maybe your translation might say, to be shaken. And of course, that's a wonderful truth from the Word of God. And wouldn't Peter, if he were thinking of Psalm 55 verse 22, be most certainly needing this encouragement so desperately because he was writing to a dispersed number of Christians from all over the area who had been severely persecuted. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 4, if you're not there, just listen. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12, it says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Peter needed to encourage the brethren because of the fact that they were being severely tried and tested and persecuted, and some of them were even being killed. For the cause of Christ, and he was telling them that if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of glory is resting upon you. And because of that persecution by those who oppose the testimony for Jesus Christ, these dispersed Christians would need so very much to cling to the truth that if they were going to endure all of these sufferings that they were experiencing, it was going to be for Christ. And King David, 
Psalm 55 was also experiencing similar suffering and persecution at the hands of the enemies of God right here in Psalm 55. And that's why these twin truths of both the Old and New Testaments are so very precious to us. And that's, by the way, we can say that the Old Testament certainly is Christian Scripture. It is for us. It's not simply for the Jews, even though it might have been directed to them most personally, but certainly we can take the principles of some passage like Psalm 55 and apply it to our own lives. And if you and I are under burdens, if we have anxiety in our lives, we just sang a song, didn't we, about this concept of fear and fearing not. And if you and I are any, under any burdens whatsoever, if we're under anxieties and challenges and tests and trials in our life, and certainly all of us are to some degree or another, we are in desperate need of passages like 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7, and 1 Peter 2, 12, 13 and 14, and Psalm 55. And as we look at Psalm 55, other than the verse that I just read to you, verse 22, other than that command from David, cast your burden on the Lord and He will sustain you, other than that command, but even with that command as a verbal prayer, every single other verse is a direct prayer of David to the Lord. Every verse of this psalm is his prayer. And just as we looked at prayer this morning and the riches of the prayer life of Jesus Christ and how that prayer life of his can relate to ours by way of spiritual principles, we can see spiritual principles from Psalm 55 tonight also. This entire psalm is David's prayer for a critical time in his own life. He was under heavy persecution. And in this case, he was particularly under heavy persecution as it related to war. People clamoring for his life. And, of course, the life of those who were helping to defend him. And so David was praying, praying so resolutely and so persistently and so fervently and so actively that this particular psalm gives us, I think, battle plans, battle strategies in our spiritual struggles with all of the anxieties that we have, with all of the challenges that we have in our lives. Now, maybe it's not that uh, we have a, an army that is besieging us and we have to go uh, somewhere so that we can either hide for the moment or fight back in the flurry of, of uh, the, the kind of artillery that's coming our way, uh, or perhaps it's not anything like that at all. Perhaps it's not physical for you, but perhaps it is either physical or perhaps spiritual or both. Whatever the case may be, here's a battle plan. Here's a way to fight the spiritual warfare. Here's a way to pray, and to pray in such a way as we follow David through this psalm where we can cast our burdens on the Lord. Why? Because He will sustain us. 
This is a, this is a prayer for which you and I can actually turn to the Word of God here in Psalm 55 and go through every line of this psalm and not only sing it back to the Lord, but pray it back to the Lord. And there are some features in this psalm that I think are incredibly important for us as we are new covenant prayers before our God. And I see four of them here, four principles, four ways of casting your prayer burden before the Lord. I couldn't help but think, by the way, of this word cast in my English standard version of the Bible. They actually translate three times in this psalm the word cast. Now, it's not the same Hebrew word each time, but the translators decided that this word cast, both positively, cast your burden on the Lord, and also maybe even in some negative contexts where the enemy were casting their insults upon David. And I kept reading cast and cast and cast. And I thought to myself, that brings me back to my young days uh, as a little boy going out fishing uh, with my father, fishing for fish. And uh, even though it wasn't uh, fishing for the right answer to prayer, I kept thinking of that that scene in my mind's eye where I was casting that reel continually to ensure that I was putting that bait in the right spot so that that fish would take that bait and that fish would become the answer to my hope for a big load. And I thought, this is, this is essentially what David is saying. He's casting his prayer line out in the water of God's answer to such prayers, asking for the Lord as he reels in such an answer that it would be the very thing that David would need to be sustained in his life. And so this is Psalm 55, and I see four ways that we can cast our burden on the Lord. Four ways that we can cast our prayer burden on the Lord. Or maybe we could say it this way. There are four different stanzas or four different thoughts about prayer for which when we pray, we could divide our prayers up in certain ways that it might be most effective in our relationship with God and as we're praying to Him. And here's the first one. Here's the first one. Cast your burden on the Lord through transparent prayer. Cast your burden on the Lord through transparent prayer. That's in the first eight verses. Now, we won't read the whole psalm at the beginning because I want to divide these up and we'll go through these quite carefully so that you and I would see, first of all, the transparency of with which David prays to the Lord. What do I mean by that? Well, the very first thing I want you to know about Psalm 55 is how honest David is in his innermost agonies regarding what he's enduring in his life. He's so transparent in his prayer to God, so honest. And I think what he's doing is he's modeling for all of us the fact that we can cast all our burdens on the Lord with complete sincerity of heart. If we know anything about these psalms, and and particularly these lament psalms, it is that we can say 
what is in our heart to the Lord with all sincerity. We can cast our burden on Him with complete transparency. You don't, indeed you cannot, hide anything from the Lord anyway. So you ought to go ahead and tell Him everything you're thinking because He knows what we're thinking even before we ask Him. And so uh, cast your prayer line out into the water of God's answers and let's see what we catch. And if there was ever a time, as I said earlier, in David's life, it was right now where he describes in Psalm 55 what precisely is on his heart. Look at verse 1. Verse 1. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Verse 2, attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and I moan. It's not as though David automatically assumes that God isn't willing or able to listen to his plea. But given the tremendous pressure he's under, and we don't know the historical sense of what's going on here. It's not given to us. Sometimes in the superscription, that very first verse of the Hebrew text that we find uh, usually just prior to verse 1, this says, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a mascal, a musical term of some kind, a mascal of David. So we don't know. There's no superscription that tells us exactly what historical event David is going through. But we do know this. He was a man of war. And there were a lot of wars. And in some way and in some historical sketch from the history of Israel, he's under attack. And we presume so is his army and so are the people of Israel. So we don't automatically presume that what David is doing is believing or thinking that God isn't listening. That's not really what verses 1 and 2 are about. What they're about is this. David wants his God to hear his transparency his honesty, his sincerity, the tremendous pressure that he's under. He's pleading to God to come to his aid, and he's greatly troubled. He's tremendously unsettled about that which so totally and completely occupies his heart at this time in his life. Notice in verse 2 it says, his moaning seems to him to be so unbearable. That's the Hebrew word, by the way, I'm restless in my complaint and I moan. And if you go back to verse 2, attend to me and answer me, that plea is the word of lament. Do you see it there in verse 1? And hide not yourself from, from my plea for mercy, from my lament for mercy. Attending to me and answering me, I'm restless, I'm I'm groaning, I'm moaning. It's as though he's saying something like this, I'm beside myself and I want you to give me your ear and please, Lord God, I beg of you, don't turn away from my lament. Please attend to me, please answer my prayers because I'm so distraught. 
about my circumstances. Anybody been in that place? Certainly all of us have. Some of you may be in that place right now. And there's such a, to me, refreshing transparency to David's prayer. So honestly asking God for help. Look at what he says in verse 3. He starts, does David, to explain exactly what it is he's so agitated about. He, He begins to detail exactly the inner turmoil of his soul due to his surrounding enemies. Why are you so transparently honest before the Lord, David? Verse 3, because of the noise of the enemy, the sound. Perhaps he hears them coming. This is the sound of the enemy, and it's large and troubling. He says, because of the oppression of the wicked. That word oppression could also be the crushing force. And then he says, for they drop trouble upon me. One of those other translations that I mentioned says, for they cast trouble upon me. So while I'm casting my burdens on the Lord as I throw out the prayer line, they're casting their own line, hoping to snag me and do me in. Because of the dropped trouble of the wicked, this is what they're doing. They are angry. In fact, the next part of verse 3 says, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. One other translation that I like said, in fury they harass me. Fear, I mean, just think of the, the, the verbal ideas here. They, they harangue me. They harass me. They drop trouble upon me. They are oppressors who want to do wicked things to me. Because of their noise, because of the sounds that they make. No wonder he's restless. No wonder he moans. And then would you please notice in verses 4 and 5 the multiple words that David uses to describe in this transparent prayer of his to God what he's going through. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. I mean, just, just think of the pathos in his voice. I mean, this, is, this is raw emotion. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death. It's like a, a death stare. I'm staring at death in the face. Fear and trembling come upon me. When I read those words, fear and trembling, I couldn't help but think of Philippians 2.12 and following where it says, work out your salvation with what? Fear and trembling. 
This is, this is precisely what David's doing. He's working out his salvation, his sanctification, his holiness with fear and trembling. It's just that in this case, he can see his enemy. We don't, we don't see our enemies. We don't see the spiritual battle that's raging around us, but we know Satan is real. We know that his angels, the demons, are all around us trying to thwart our growth in the Christian life, trying to do harm to our sanctification, wanting us to be beleaguered so that we won't pursue holiness and just give up. David transparently prays and essentially says the same thing, although he can see them coming. And he says, latter part of verse 5, and horror overwhelms me. You know what he's saying in this transparent prayer? I'm afraid. I'm very afraid. And you and I might say, the king of Israel? The one who was not afraid at all of Goliath of Gath? However tall he might have been, seven feet, eight feet, would Goliath of Gath not have put David, the boy David, in utter terror? What did David say back in his youth? You've sullied the name of God. Off with your head. I mean, where, where did he get that as a little boy? And now as a full-grown man who's the king of the Israelite army, and he says, I'm afraid. And not just I'm afraid. Fear, trembling, horror, terrors of death, anguished heart, restless complaining, moaning. Give me your ear, God. Attend to me. He's lamenting. This is what he's doing. And the transparency of his heart is coming through in living color, and that transparency is so, to me, refreshing. Because I have my issues. You have yours. Are the bills going to get paid? Are the answers to my prayers going to be both asked for and answered? Am I going to be physically able to continue to do what I want to do? Am I, am I going to be able to be there for my friends? Am I going to be the kind of person that people will look up to and respect so that I might lead them and disciple them? And will they see in me that kind of respect whereby they will be willing to follow? Whatever it may be, whatever ministry you have, whatever desires you have, whatever you're doing, be transparently prayerful before your God. He already knows what you need. Your Heavenly Father already knows before you ask Him what those needs are. But He still wants us very transparently to climb up into His lap in a very humble way to give Him our requests. He wants to hear. He wants our transparency. 
And the kind of transparent prayer that David is modeling for us is this kind of prayer, cast your burden on the Lord and He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be shaken. He wants us to ask so, can, so that He can be the prayer answering God. It's not just uh, on autopilot, my prayer life. If someone were to fatalistically say, well, if the Bible says, if the Sermon on the Mount gives us the indication that God already knows my prayers before I ask Him, then what's the use? You know, I suspect that if someone had that kind of attitude as a Christian, God would not be so inclined to answer such a prayer. If you think that God, who already knows what those requests are before we ask Him, is the kind of God who's trying to manipulate me in some way so that I go to Him and He's somehow sinfully wanting me to beg, then that's maybe not a God you ought to pray to anyway. And in fact, that's not really the God we serve. He's loving, gracious, kind, and He entreats us to come. And so we come to cast our burden on the Lord, and we do so very transparently. Number two, number two, you cast your burden on the Lord not just through transparent prayer, but also targeted prayer, targeted prayer. Prayer gives us the very opportunity to ask for specificity from God, targeting our prayers. This is, this is so wonderfully taught to us in verses 9 to 15 and also in verses 20 and 21. Right after David gives us this transparency of verses 1 to 5, he says, in verse 6, 7, and 8 as almost a, a prelude before his targeted prayer, this idea. And I say, verse 6, Oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. That is, to be at rest from this, from this encroaching army. Verse 7, yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness and do you see that little phrase, silah? It means stop and, and ponder. It's like a musical interlude of some kind. Stop and, and, and think about what David is engendering us to sing, to pray. What he's saying is, God, my transparent prayer is that if I had my druthers, I'd want to be so far away from these circumstances as I possibly could be that I'd sprout wings like a dove and fly away and be at rest, not under the circumstances, not under the trial, not under these very difficult circumstances. I, yes, would wander far away. I would want to lodge in the wilderness, and not the wilderness in, in the sense of the bad wilderness. You know, the Judean wilderness was not 
completely a kind of wilderness where there was nothing but sticks and rocks. Some places of the Judean wilderness, there were uh, things like green grass and water. That's probably what David's saying. Take me to the place where I can gain sustenance and nourishment and rest. And so he says, that's where I would lodge and I would hurry to find a shelter, a place of safety from the raging wind and tempest. That word, by the way, raging wind, occurs nowhere else except in the Hebrew Old Testament right here. It's a very unique word. And it might mean something like this, from the absolute streaming force of the wind and the tempest of the sea. I would hurry and find a place of shelter from all of the scorching, raging, streaming of the water and the tempest of the sea. And then as a transparent brother who knows the Lord, he says, yeah, here's, what I'm, here's where I'm going to turn. I'm going to turn to specifically now target my prayer in this way. Verse 9, destroy, O Lord. This is a prayer, folks. Destroy, O Lord. Divide their tongues. He's talking about his enemy. For I see violence and strife in the city. We, we don't know what city it is. It could, could, of course, be Jerusalem, could be Hebron, could be somewhere else where David might have been. And what he sees when he looks around is that the army is inside the gates, inside the city walls, and there's violence and strife. And notice how long, verse 10, day and night they go around it on its walls, and iniquity and trouble are within it, within the city. Ruin is in its midst. Oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. Maybe that means that the city that he once loved and once knew and wanted to be utterly protected as the king is now being overrun by the enemy, by the invading army. And so he says in a targeted prayer, destroy them, O Lord. Destroy them. Divide their tongues. Make them confused with each other. Make them not be able to communicate clearly. That's what I'd call a very targeted prayer. Targeted prayer. Verse 12. And this is, this is so interesting because from verses 9 and 10 and 11, you, you hear him using all of this language about this enemy from the outside who has come to the inside of the city. And now maybe he turns completely to some kind of enemy on the inside. Verse 12. For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him, 
but it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. Most interesting. What is he talking about here? I mean, clearly, verses 9, 10, and 11 are different from verses 12, 13, 14, and 15. Very different. It's quite possible that David might be saying something like this. The enemy has overtaken us, and someone I thought who was my right-hand man has given himself over to the enemy. And by stealth, he's told me all along he's my friend, and now he too has become my enemy. If it were an enemy, he says in verse 12, that taunted me, I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then otherwise I could hide from him. I could go far away. I I could go to the wilderness. I, I could seek shelter. I could be safe. But this is somebody from the inside. You. As though he's talking directly to the person. But it's you. A man, my equal. And notice these terms that he uses. My companion. My intimate friend. We used to take sweet counsel together, verse 14 says. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. You know what that means? You and I worshiped together. We worshiped together with God's people. Have you ever had a situation with somebody that you you thought was a friend? Who turned on you? Who seemed so supportive on the outside, but who was all about destroying you on the inside. You know, I cannot read verses 12, 13, and 14 without thinking of Jesus and his relationship with Judas. One of the other Psalms speaks about Judas raising up his heel against me which is actually what Jesus quotes from that psalm about Judas. And while there's no explicit reference here to Judas and not quoted anywhere in the New Testament about him, to me it's quite evident that while David had his adversary, Jesus had his as well from the inside. I mean, there were certainly those, like the Romans, who were against Jesus and who helped put Him on the cross, their cross, a Roman cross. But there were also those from the inside who were saying, we too are looking for the Messiah. We want to worship Him. We even are some of those who might very well put those palm branches down on the ground and say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And who would in a moment turn and betray the Son of God? And that's, of course, Judas, my equal, a man like me. 
a companion, an intimate friend. I, I think of that scene at the Lord's Supper, the institution of the very Lord's Supper, the Supper of the Lord. And, and when they had that wine and that bread, when Jesus was in that upper room with them, he took a morsel of such bread and he dipped it in that wine as a show as a sign of intimacy of friendship. And he extended it to Judas, knowing that Judas was a person who had taken sweet counsel with him. They'd worshiped together in the Lord's temple, in God's house. We walked in the throng. And then, of course, when Judas gave him that kiss and betrayed him, he said, do what you must do. Do it quickly. David, of course, didn't know any of that. But here's what David knew. There were tests from the outside and tests from within. The outside, violence, verse 9, strife, verse 9, iniquity, verse 10, trouble, verse 10, ruin, verse 11, oppression, verse 11, fraud, verse 11, and now, verses 12, 13, and 14, all of the sweet I love you's and you're my friend and I will never betray you and you and I have a Jonathan-David relationship and whoever this was turned his back, and David felt like he was all alone. So what what does he do in this targeted prayer? Well, as I showed you in verse 9, destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues. And now verse 15, let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive, the place of the grave. For evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. Both those from without and those from within. And by the way, do you know the the scene of this betrayer, whoever he might be, the traitor? He talks about him again. Look at verses 20 and 21. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. I tell you, I cannot get out of my mind Judas accepting the morsel. He violated his covenant, his promise to be a support. Verse 21, his speech was smooth as butter. Ah, Rabbi, the Garden of Gethsemane, giving him a kiss, hugging his neck. Speech smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Instead of a heart of integrity, it's a heart of war. Instead of buttery, it's, instead of sweet speech, buttery smooth speech that intends to betray. And words, instead of being softer than oil, 
pleasant to the hearing? Drawn swords. So David targets his prayer. Lord, deal with them. Divide their tongues. Make them go down to the grave because they've got evil in every place they walk and also in their heart. This is, this is a targeted prayer. And this is often very, very hard for Christians to pray. Do you know that in the Psalms, many of them that give these kind of lament verses, maybe the whole Psalm is a song of lament. And when the Jews prayed those prayers, when the Israelites convened together and sang these songs of lament, some Christians even say today, I can't even read such a psalm. I don't want to sing that. I don't want to have anything to do with these imprecatory psalms. And yet, do you know that if you and I, not only in our country, but us individually, if we were under siege, we'd be praying prayers like, Lord, divide their tongues. Lord, don't, don't let them destroy us. You think that they were snatching our babies and taking them from us and sacrificing them to an unknown God, to a pagan deity? No wonder one of the Psalms says, how blessed are you, O Lord, when you take those Babylonian babies and dash them against the rocks. You say, I would never. Well, think again, if you were in the kind of position that David's in here, let death steal over them. Let them die. Do them in. Deliver us. That's a targeted prayer. You say, well, what, what do we do? I mean, where are we when we pray things like that when we can't see our enemy? Well, perhaps we ought to say, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. Destroy the evil one and cast him into the lake of fire, which is the second death that burns forever and ever. Right? Lord, don't let the enemy attack my children. Don't let them do spiritual violence against their little hearts. Protect them. Protect them, not only from themselves, but protect them from those who would do them harm. Isn't that the kind of prayer you pray when they get in those teenage years and you say, Lord, protect them from those who would otherwise seemingly be like good friends, but who would then influence them for the sake of unrighteousness? I dare say you're praying for your children right now, praying for their hearts, praying for your grandchildren, praying that they wouldn't succumb to the enemy's wiles. This is, this is real. This is targeted praying. And if you had a specific situation and a specific prayer request for which you were targeting those prayers, you'd be praying with the kind of transparency and the kind of targeted prayer that would be real and raw because you'd be saying, Lord, don't let them do this. 
Don't let the enemy do this to us, and don't let anybody from the inside betray us. Take care of me. Take care of my family. Take care of our church. Take care of the people of God. Minister to them. Challenge us to target our prayers to you, for you're the only one who knows how to raise your hand against those who are mightier than than we are. I even see a, a third way to pray. Cast your burden on the Lord, not just through transparent prayer and targeted prayer, but triumphant prayer. Triumphant prayer. This is, this is what I love about psalms like these. Once David targets his prayer, verse 9, destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues. Verse 15, let death steal over them. Let them go to the grave alive because they're evil in their dwelling place and in their heart. And then he just launches in verse 16 in a triumphant prayer to God. But I call to God and the Lord will do something. What will he do? Save me. Deliver me. And you know, when he talks about in the, in the day and the night that the evil people are going around the walls of the city in verse 10, well, look at what he says about this triumphant prayer in verse 17. Evening and morning and at noon. That's, that would be our way of saying morning, noon, and night, right? All day. And all night, I utter my complaint, my moan, and he takes right back our hearts to verse 2. I'm restless in my complaint, and I moan. He says, evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. He hears my voice. I climbed up into your lap, and I complained and moaned about the enemies of God And I called upon you, and you delivered me. That is, you delivered us. And he hears my voice. Notice, he hears my voice. Not even just, he heard my voice. I prayed once, and he heard my voice. He continually hears my voice. He redeems, verse 18, my soul in safety from the battle that I wage For many are arrayed against me. God will give ear and humble them, or even the Hebrew term, and afflict them, he who is enthroned from of old. Selah. Ponder this. And again, somebody says, yes, he is speaking triumphantly. He is praying this prayer before God, and it's a prayer of triumph. That's true. But again, I'm skittish to pray a prayer that says, afflict them, humble them. David's not. He's not at all because he knows what the alternative might be. We're going to be destroyed. So he says, humble them. And if someone says, but, but, but how can a Christian pray such prayers. How can the new covenant believer pray such a prayer? I tell you why, into verse 19. Because they do not change. That word change. They do not repent and do not fear God. That's Romans 3. 
There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is, this is what God will ultimately do to all unrepentant sinners who have no fear of God before their eyes. And because they have no fear of God before their eyes and because they aren't going to repent, God will judge them. And David is saying, make it now. Make it now before they destroy us. That's a triumphant prayer. That's what you and I ought to be praying out of Ephesians chapter 6. Lord, I, I have the sword of the Spirit. I have the Word of God. I, I have my intercessory prayers as a weapon in the hand of God against your enemies. All you have to do is just turn on the television. Read the news. And all you hear about and all you seemingly see is a lot of unrighteousness and unholiness. And perhaps even when it comes to your front door, you'd be targeting your prayer and you'd be relying on a God who you have such faith and confidence in that you'd be saying triumphantly, our God will do what is right. Our God will act. God will give His ear to my triumphant prayer that's targeted about these wicked men, and He will afflict them, this God who's enthroned from old. He's the only God there is. He's the King God, and He's going to deal with those who don't repent and don't fear Him at all, and who never will, and He will deal with them. And he says the same thing in the first part of verse 23. But you, O God, this is his prayer now, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Who are these people? Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days. Their lives are going to be cut in half. That's that's this triumphant prayer. And then the psalm ends with the fourth kind of praying, the fourth kind of casting your burden on the Lord, and I call it trusting prayer. Trusting prayer. Latter part of verse 23, but I will trust in you. Takes faith. Takes trust. Continual trust, continual faith. Continual beseeching the Lord. Unending prayer, persevering prayer, persistent prayer. In faith, in trust, but I will trust in you. Transparent, targeted, triumphant, trusting. I I will trust in you. I will believe that you are going to do what you have promised you will do. I, I don't know about your own heart, but when Psalm 55 is studied and meditated on and read and and broken apart, this entire prayer of God, prayer to God by David, this this is a kind of prayer that works so well for us as Christians because it gives us the components of all the ways that God delights 
and answering. Let's pray to the Lord and ask Him to answer prayers like this from our own hearts. Heavenly Father, we want to be honest and sincere and transparent before You, telling You everything that we're thinking. Yes, yes, we know that You know what we're thinking, but we want to articulate them. We want to verbalize them. Even if it's in our own heart where nobody else hears, or maybe we're in a group as we're about to do, and we corporately pray and others hear our prayers. We want to be sincere and transparent and honest. And we want to target our prayers. Whatever requests we may have, whatever supplications that are in our hearts, we want to target you and your character for the right and righteous answers to our prayers. We want to target our requests directly to you and ask you to answer some prayer requests of ours very, very deliberately and very specifically. And we also pray in a triumphant way because if we pray according to your will, you hear us in whatever we ask. And if we know that we have those requests because we're asking due to your will, we know we have the requests that we've asked from you. That's what 1 John 5 tells us. And we are to be triumphant in a God who answers prayers like that according to your will. And we also want to trust. We, we trust you. We believe you and we believe in you. And we want our prayers to be offered in faith. We don't want to throw up cheap prayers that are not well thought out and not sincere and transparent from the heart and not targeted in any specific way so that we can see tangible answers from your heart to ours. We want to pray in those ways. We want to cast our burdens on you in trust, faith. May we do so now because it honors you as God. And it will be to your glory and to our good for us to pray like this. Thank you for David's heart under the inspiration of your Holy Spirit to give us such a mighty prayer like this to pray.